1: I do think this book was my chance to feature the ingredients that I love, but that don't necessarily, like, captivate the internet user, because orzo is delicious, and I think a lot of people love it. I think people forget about it. It's like this little thing that you forget about.
2: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel, here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard.
0: In today's episode, Anna's talking to Ali Slagle, a writer whose recipes you might recognize from The New York Times, Bon Appetit, Food 52, and many more. She's also the author of the new cookbook, I Dream of Dinner.
2: This book is for people like Ali who spend all day thinking about what to make for dinner. Another fun topic of conversation here was van life. Ali has spent a big chunk of the past year traveling around the country in a camper van, which, of course, has made her cooking a lot more limited and maybe even more interesting.
0: Here's Anna talking to Ali.
2: Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Ali. Thank you for having me. So your book, which is out now, is called I Dream of Dinner. What is it about dinner that's so evocative and sort of inspiring to you?
1: Dinner is one of those things that you kind of have to do every single day. So there's this moment for joy every day. And, you know, I think
2: unlike breakfast or lunch, it's kind of the sigh of relief at the end of the day when at least some of our daily responsibilities are over.
1: Yeah. And you have the whole day to think about it if you want to or You forget about it all day, and then you have to work really fast to put it together. So for me, it's like I love to think about dinner, so I think about it all day long. And I hope that that experience will help other people who forget it's dinner time and need to put something together. Totally. One of the first things I noticed about your book is that there are no
2: measurements listed in the ingredients lists. What made you decide to omit that detail that's in so many cookbooks, so many recipes?
1: Yeah, it was, I thought about it for a really long time. I think for me, I learned how to cook by watching people cook. And the people who I learned how to cook from didn't miss everything to start. And to me, that felt like a much more natural way to cook. So I wanted to think about how to adapt the recipe form so that it captured how I like to cook, which is kind of chopping as you go and measuring as you go. The book does have a shopping list, so you're able to kind of scan it quickly and see if you have everything. But the idea really is that you're not required to have specific ingredients. It's more just if you have certain ingredients from certain categories, you can proceed with the recipe. And so many of these
2: ingredients, you only need a little bit to go a long way. Like I think of that pasta recipe where you crisp up some salumi and then you kind of bathe the pasta and the the flavorful fat from that. And it doesn't take that much salumi to bring a lot of flavor.
1: Yeah, I did kind of, um, it was kind of like a minor obsession was thinking about ingredients that do more than one thing. So like in that recipe... My idea was like a ragu that takes a really short amount of time. And with something like a salumi, um, you have the fat to carry through the pasta and sauce it, but then you also actually have meat.
2: One of the other really fun things about this book is all of the ways that you think about what I'll call the bean kingdom, (laughs) like the whole world of legumes, tempeh tofu, thinking about this whole category of proteins as, like, a set of different textures. Um, You have a few recipes that involve crisping up beans or chickpeas in the oven until they get kind of, like, crackly and, like, almost like a fried texture. What do you like about this technique so much? And, like, what are sort of... What are, like, some of the possibilities once you start crisping up your beans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I had a concern about this like pandemic bean trend because I worried people would get sick of beans. Um, but I really hope that people still like beans because I think they're one of the most versatile ingredients. Um, and you can kind of always have them around in a way that a lot of pantry ingredients are more like supplementary. Um, cans of beans like can really carry a meal. So crisping beans is fun because the skins kind of add this feathery texture depending on what kind of bean you use. Um, And it's in that way kind of like a garnish and a main ingredient.
2: It can play a lot of different roles. I mean, I personally am not sick of beans yet. I've eaten a lot of beans in the last two years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still adding them to the grocery list, though.
1: Yeah, and I think... um, I developed this whole book during the pandemic, so I really was guided by what was available in my grocery store during that time, and I could always find some kind of bean. So a lot of the recipes can work with a lot of different kinds of beans, which is kind of the whole idea of the book. Like, you don't need a specific thing to make any of these recipes. The
2: cool thing about the roasting, like on a sheet pan in the oven is that it also just sort of like frees up your stirring energy to do some other part of the meal, like make a cool sauce or like cut some vegetables, that sort of thing.
1: The other thing, too, about crisping beans in the oven is that beans are in a can are packed in moisture and bean liquid, and so if you try and fry them on the stovetop, They will splatter a lot, and you have to clean um, a lot of surfaces. So in the oven, you kind of avoid that whole situation.
2: Totally. I've been eyeing actually this Eric Kim recipe from his book. That's sort of like a chickpea take on Korean fried chicken, which is so cool because you get, as you mentioned, like the skin kind of gets this like feathery, crunchy texture. It works with a sticky sauce like that.
1: I mean, you can buffalo anything. So you could buffalo chickpeas or any bean if you really wanted.
2: I like that as a verb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: As someone from Buffalo, like the idea of just buffaloing it. It was um, it was a joke, a running joke when I worked at Food 52. Like, will it buffalo? Like, could you buffalo that? And there's actually a section in the book called Will It Buffalo? What's the craziest thing that you've tried the buffalo? Well, I mean, honestly, I think the best thing to buf- buffalo is a vegetable. So in the book, there's kind of a buffalo dressing for um, crispy greens and celery um, because I think like the hot... If you think about buffalo not as specifically a chicken coating but as a, a spicy sauce, it kind of opens up what you can do with it.
2: Totally. I was also happy to see some good orzo representation in the <laughs> book. I'm such an orzo stan, but I feel like it can be like a little bit... Uh, Like, people sort of look down on orzo compared to other pasta shapes, but what do you like about cooking with it?
1: (laughs) I do think this book was my chance to feature the ingredients that I love, but that don't necessarily, like, captivate the internet user, Um, because orzo is delicious, and I think a lot of people love it. I think people forget about it. It's like this little thing that you forget about. It's kind of like rice, but it cooks very quickly, And it just, it feels so good in your mouth, like all of these little um, feathery bits. So I think it's really fun. And I like to use it as kind of a rice in terms of like risotto and stuff like that.
2: I was just reading an article that you wrote for The Strategist, which I'll link to in the show notes, about how you spent at least six months of the past year um, living out of a camper van and traveling all over the country as someone who cooks so much and writes about cooking for a living, was it hard to give up your your real kitchen that's stationary and, you know, you have all your pots and pans and everything where you know it where it is?
1: I think it was after such a long time of kind of stagnation and being in one place during the pandemic, I thought it would be really helpful for my work to change my cooking environment and to be tasked to do my job with new tools just because everyone's kitchen isn't the same as my kitchen and I, I want to kind of optimize my recipes for any situation. The camper van is an extreme situation, um, but a lot of the same limitations that I had in Brooklyn kind of applied to the camper van too, like counter space or dishwashing or you know only having two burners that work stuff like that was all kind of the same situation.
2: People are also always at least asking me about what they can cook in like an Airbnb with especially if you're you've booked something and you don't really know what the kitchen will be like. There're just a lot of unknowns. You know you'll have to kind of improvise and be open to whatever. So it is really helpful when a recipe is like sort of pared down in that way to just the essential ingredients.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we so we've been driving across the country, but then we stop at Airbnb so that I do have a fuller kitchen, like with an oven, to do some recipe work. Um, and I was getting kind of obsessed with what what Airbnbs had, and the one thing that really shocked me was no one had like a, a restaurant. Supply sheet pan like a a half sheet pan. Everything was kind of this nonstick dark metal jelly roll pan, which I suddenly had like a lot of anxiety that people were making sheet pan recipes on this smaller sheet pan, which like affects moisture and blah blah blah. But um, it just was like that sort of information really helps me when I'm developing. Totally, a sheet pan is something that's like becomes such a
2: standard unit in recipes lately because like everyone loves a good sheet pan recipe but sheet pan can mean so many different things to different people right quarter sheet half sheet and like a whole sheet pan is not really something
1: any home cook has right correct what we're all using is a half sheet pan and ideally the metal is on the lighter colored side so that the food cooks more evenly throughout
2: as you were sort of traveling around the country cooking from Airbnbs and from your van, did you ever find yourself craving like the feeling of like an elaborate cooking project mm-hmm. like just spreading out on like tons of <laughs> counter space, gathering a, lots of ingredients?
1: That's a funny question to be honest, I think I never craved that. If I wanted to really cook, I would um do something that took a long time like a lot of passive time like braising something or cooking beans Um, but I don't often want to like cook actively for very long I think because I have to do it so much for work. That makes sense. Were there ever times traveling
2: around the country when it was just like really hard to find a specific ingredient? Because like living in New York, I just take it for granted that there's so many stores that have so many different ingredients. Everything's available online now too.
1: Yeah. Um, I was in Colorado in Summit County and I needed pork belly to test a recipe and I couldn't the closest place was two hours away, and um, in our old van, that would have taken four hours. But then I actually found a really good mail-order meat company that delivered. Um, but it was like, that was really the one time when I thought, like, I really cannot find this ingredient. One, I mean, I think one of the perks of the pandemic is that so so many ingredients are available online now. I think I tested that fully on this trip, and it's true. You can get a lot of stuff online.
2: I got really into camping during the pandemic. I'm a total poser at camping, like (laughs) I'm a real newcomer to this, but I really love cooking while camping because there are kind of those constraints, like the simplicity of it, but also just like cooking outside is so fun. And people always sort of like associate hot dogs, maybe beans, s'mores with camping, but are there some underrated foods in your mind for like cooking outdoors on a camp stove or uh, or on a fire.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing about camping outside is it's delicious no matter what you make. There's like something about the fire and you're outside and um you're in a new environment like it just makes the simplest things taste really good. The one dish that I made that dish, quote unquote, um that comes to mind is we were at a campsite in South Dakota and I wanted to make just like eggs and toast. Um, And I had like fried some bacon. And then I was like thinking about how I would toast the bread. And I was like, I could like put it in the fire. And then obviously I fried it in the bacon fat. And I put a bacon fat fried piece of toast with peach jam. And then I was like, I'm not going to make eggs. Like this is delicious. Like this is all you really need. So I think using your fats to crisp other things makes... A very simple meal, very good. That sounds so good. I
2: I like the kind of like rule breakingness of it too, like bacon fat plus peach jam, dessert, salty, meaty.
1: Yeah. I think we put some hot sauce on it too. It was good.
2: That sounds awesome. We ask a lot of our podcast guests this, what's a dream cookbook that you think about writing that you haven't?
1: Oh my gosh. Um I really don't think about it. I think there's a lot of books that I wish existed, but I don't think I'm the writer for them. What's a
2: book that you wish existed?
1: Um, I do think a lot about, I think Samin's book, um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat was probably the closest to it, but I think a lot about how you help people cook intuitively um, and how how a recipe could help people find their own way through the kitchen. And I don't really know what that answer is, but I just think there's so much power and joy in going into a kitchen without a recipe and figuring out what you're making as you go. Um, And I just don't know the best way to to teach people that. And I think there is a way and there is someone who will help us with all of that. Well, Allie
2: Slagle, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Matt, we're back in the studio, and I wanted to ask you. We do this every once in a while. I wanted to ask you about three things you've been eating lately, watching, cooking, anything in like the extended food cinematic universe, basically, <laughs> that you've been really enthused about.
0: Absolutely, I think I have more than three, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on three right now. And one of them I'll start with is Ben Mims, who's uh, a columnist and recipe developer at the Los Angeles Times, uh, published a recipe for masa harina cornbread.
2: Wow, that's cool. I've never seen that. I, I always see the cornmeal recipe.
0: Exactly. You're usually going to get most of these recipes have that Jiffy corn muffin or meal mix. You can you can use lots of different versions of cornmeal. But um, he calls for ma, uh, maseka, which is uh, instant masa. And I felt I'm not a big cornbread baker. I'm not really a big baker in general, but I'm not a big cornbread baker. But I, this this um this recipe spoke to me. I had some Maseka um in my in my pantry, and I loved it. It's a great recipe. And I feel like what it does is it gives me this cornbread that um is a slightly more savory cornbread. His sugar amount is dialed back quite a bit. And you can, of course, scale up with more sugar with a cornbread recipe. But it feels distinctly Mexican, and I feel like that, to me, is a flavor that has comfort to it. And with cornbread, sometimes it can be all sugar and not a lot of anything else. But with this version, um, I I like it. I think I hit uh, Ben up on Instagram, and and we both have been kind of – it was like a uh, a love fest from my end because I really (laughs) enjoyed it. Um, I did not put enough butter on top of it, though. That was one thing I kind of messed up.
2: You got to put the butter on top. I grew up eating, like, as breakfasts, um, like – microwaved squares of cornbread from the night before with some butter and then just like doused in maple syrup.
0: Dude, really? You gotta Ma- try that. We'll talk about maple syrup and baked goods later on in our three things segment as a little ooh. tease. Ooh, ooh. But what do you got, Anna? What's, your, what's your one of your favorite three things right now?
2: Okay, a recent um, item that I ate was the stuffed cabbage at Thai Diner. I went there ooh. with a couple of friends last night They sort of specialize in um, crossovers between, like, regional Thai food and, like, comforting American diner food. So their stuffed cabbage is stuffed with jasmine rice, some turkey, some mushrooms, and then it's kind of, like, braised in this coconut galangal broth. Mm. It's so good. It's, like— one of those concepts that doesn't sound like it's going to work, but it's totally awesome.
0: I love that restaurant Thai Diner. It's from the duo behind Uncle Boon's, uh, one of my favorite restaurants in New York, hands down. And I absolutely love that way of 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 doing like the diner meets Thailand and bringing those regional uh, dishes. In galangal, what, uh, explain galangal because I feel like like it's one of those herbs uh, that doesn't get its fair shake. It's so delicious.
2: Totally. It's like a little hard to describe, but it's one of those things that um, when it's missing from a dish, you really Mm -hmm. kind of notice. It just adds like that really pleasant, aromatic, like almost sort of what ginger does in a dish, but like with a totally different flavor profile
0: i think of it as basil but like going more towards the ginger side of it like it's like a thai basil but it has it's more uh it's sweeter actually is what i think it is to be honest a little more rounder
2: yeah totally what's another one of your three things
0: well i have to shout out my new friends at glenmere farm um in florida new york not florida the state or florida uh, mississippi but florida new york look it up um it's run by uh McGoldrick. Magol- McGoldrick. Um sorry if I, I, I messed up your name. Uh Kieran. Um it's such a great place. Uh he's a vet of Cafe Baloo and Spoon and Stable, the the great Minneapolis restaurant run by uh, Gavin Kaysen. But um up at Glenmere Farm, he's doing um I believe uh catered dinners um that can be booked down. We were celebrating my mother-in-law's 70th birthday. This weekend and and he um, and his team cooked a beautiful meal. But he's doing spring and and summer and fall dinners as well, farm dinners. Um, I love it. He's doing like a lot of this classic, very like, I would say, well-trained and finished cooking that is both adventurous and comforting. He did a charred Spanish octopus with chorizo butter and yuzu aioli. And he made these croquettes, which I think are super underrated because a lot of croquettes can be a little flabby. But when you go a little oversized with the croquettes and he made it, it was kind of like a pot pie using some young chickens that he had on the farm. This pot pie croquette. Oh, so good. That's Love a that. a
2: genius idea because if you like thicken the bechamel enough, you kind of turn your pot pie filling into a croquette filling. Like it sort of like hits reaches that texture at some point.
0: And you've got this beautiful crust that Emily M- – Emulates the uh, crust of the of the pot pie.
1: Really? Beautiful cool. dish.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, check out Glenmere Farm in Florida, New York. Um, beautiful inn, Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera. Anna, what's your next one?
2: Okay, so my next one is really revolves around citrus season. Um I every once in a while order produce from Natura, which is a company that's based in New York and London, I believe. And they basically partner with a lot of small farms all over the country. Um, and they deliver. They they started out as a business that just delivered wholesale to restaurants. Mm, yeah, right. But during the pandemic, they started doing home deliveries. So it's really cool as a home cook to get to order these, like, really, really specific specialty pieces of produce. <laughs> so I ordered these mandarin quats from them last wow. week. Which are basically a cross a hybrid between Mandarin oranges and kumquats. You can eat the skin, but it's just kind of like a slightly sweeter, bigger, like more orange version of a kumquat. It's what's really the cool. website? It's Natura, N A T O O R A.
0: I have not ordered, but we've we've written about it, I believe previously on taste but what else are you finding on uh, on this on the website what else are we coming we by
2: well right now a lot of really cool chicories like really beautiful pink castle Franco mm-hmm. radicchio all of those kinds of salad greens that like I just can't find at my neighborhood grocery store it's
0: so great
1: mm.
2: what's another one of your three things
0: well I'm gonna say I had a great meal. With Eric Kim, whose book, Korean American, is coming down the pipeline. We, we, we interviewed him in the, in the fall. Um, we went to Chodongal in the city, a uh, great uh, tofu restaurant in, on 35th Street. And we had kongbiji chigae and some great jeon. And I just got to catch up with Eric, whose book is amazing. He brought us the best little gift. He baked us some of his milk bread. And it was like out of this world and I felt honored that he actually baked it for us and I'm going to make the recipe. But what I like about it is it's sweetened with maple syrup. And I feel like that was my tease earlier in the episode. I feel like that is a really smart technique to make Japanese or Korean-style milk bread um, using maple syrup. The texture was perfect too. I just loved it.
2: Totally, I'm glad you brought this up because actually, I you split the loaf in mm-hmm. half. You gave some to me to take home, and I ate the bread with a salad with that pink castle franco from oh. the Torah. It all ties together. It
0: does. I toasted it, sliced it thin, and put uh, marmalade on it uh, and butter. That was my kind of going extra sweet with it. But I could have, lo- I would have, could have paired it with salad as well. That would have been cool.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to bake that recipe.
0: What's your third?
2: Um, my third is that I recently went to Kaluistian's in Manhattan. Legendary, like, two-story big grocery store of Armenian groceries, Turkish groceries, mm. Indian groceries.
0: Lexington Avenue, check it out. 30, so Street.
2: many amazing spices that are hard to find elsewhere. Um, just really, really fun to go to. And I discovered that their freezer section is so fun, so Mm -hmm. underrated. I got these amazing frozen uh, Turkish-style manti, which are, like, these little tiny um, delicate lamb dumplings. And they're so good. I just, like, had them for a weekday lunch at some point after that, just, like, boiling them, Mm. topping them with some garlicky yogurt. It was just, like... So fast and so delicious.
0: So frozen Monty actually works. It's like pot stickers that you're going to get in the frozen uh, section as well, right? So you're going to boil them or fry them. Is that kind of how it works with these?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, these ones are sort of designed to be boiled. Um, And yeah, and I, I realized that a lot of online stores also sell frozen Monty. They're like pretty easy to come by. And they're just so delicious and satisfying. Just a really cool thing to always have around.
1: I
0: love it. And as a postscript, uh, thank you for the three things, Anna. As a postscript, I just want to shout out Chowhound. We got news yesterday on Twitter that Chowhound is shutting down four months shy of its 25th birthday. And um, I think we'll probably write something at some point about Chowhound. I think it's important Uh, Jim left the founder went to uh, his website his blog and and wrote a memory about it and I'll just say for me Chow Hound um, was early internet food internet and so inspiring and influential to so many of us so many of our writers and the way um, it really nerded out about food in the best possible way um, where to eat how to cook I love Chow Hound R.I.P. Chow Hound
2: Totally. I remember reading it in college and like dreaming of working at a food website like that. And also just their forums, like their user generated forums were so such an amazing way to like figure out where to buy a super specific ingredient or like how to cook a super specific item. It was just like such a trailblazer.
0: And I think a lot of writers who are now considered, you know, important figures in food media started on Chowhound as like just super users or just people who love dipping in and writing their opinion about food. I feel Chowhound um, kind of died a slow death, unfortunately, and hadn't really been where where it was at its peak, which I'd imagine is like the early 2000s, mid 2000s, maybe that's when it was really roaring. Maybe it'll come back. I think it's one of those brands that has a lot of brand equity and brand identity and somebody will maybe pick it up and, and run with it. But for now, RIP Chowhound.
2: RIP Chowhound. It was great catching up about our latest three things that we were really excited about.
0: Absolutely. Until next time, Anna.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter.
1: Thanks for listening.